Um, the heat was already mentioned. How's everybody dealing with the heat wave? It's kind of this, <laughs> it's pretty oppressive, I'll be honest. I kind of want to get away to, to the cottage and do some swimming, but here we all are. So thank you for coming out, especially thank you for coming out on Canada Day, right? It's a big, it's exciting day, July 1st in Canada. I, it's only, I guess, once every, what, seven years that you have uh, St. Jean-Baptiste, seven days later, Canada Day, both on Sundays, and you're like, ah, oh, what do we do for church? <laughs> um, uh, so last week, we were, um, we were encouraging you as we um, didn't meet for church, but to meet within your city groups, to meet within your collectives, with your friends, um, and, and with your neighbors. So I hope uh, that you all were doing that. Um, one, one of the things that I noticed, it, with all this heat, right, coming up these stairs into the theater, it, it just doesn't help. And it's still kind of hot in here. This, the AC's working, but it can't kind of beat the heat, or so to say. And... Uh, this reminds me of something that I've always wanted to do. I saw this a few years ago just in the news, and there's this, I don't know if it's a competition, it's more of like a charity event, but you can actually climb the CN Tower. You can climb the stairs, all 1,776 stairs of the CM Tower, right to the top. And apparently, it can take you as low as 30 minutes, for most of us probably, uh, at least for me, it'd probably take a lot more than that. But when the CN Tower, speaking of towers, was completed in 1975 at 558 meters, it was the tallest freestanding structure um, in the world at the time. And because of this, it quickly became um, one of Canada's most recognizable, one of Canada's most celebrated icons. It was named one of the seven moderns of, uh, wonders of the modern world. And it held this, this title of you know, tallest freestanding structure right up until 2007, so a huge number of years, until it was passed by uh, towers popping up in uh, the Middle East and in, in Asia, and it's actually slipped all the way down to number nine, and in about a year and a half from now, scheduled co for completion, there's a tower that's supposed to be a thousand meters in height, which is nearly twice the height of the CN Tower. That's extraordinary, but our sermon today is about the earliest skyscraper recorded in human history, the earliest skyscraper. And this is part of our summer mixtape series. It just means that over the course of this summer, you're gonna be hearing um, topics about what the, the speakers have been reading and, and thinking and praying about. So coming to church will sort of be like receiving a letter from Revenue Quebec. You, you never know what you're gonna get until you, <laughs> you open it up. <laughs> So, so why did I choose to speak on the Tower of Babel? Well, it's because the more that I thought about this story, I, I'd heard it before, but the more I thought about it, the more it intrigued me. That this story is actually a profound commentary on, on human nature. It's a profound commentary on all of us. And in these short, th these nine verses, there, there are like eons, eons of wisdom. And I want to say that the point this morning, our story exposes the techno-fueled religious selfish ambitions that we have, the techno-fueled religious self-ambitions, and that the same struggle that the builders faced at Babel, we face today. But before we get in, I'm going to start by setting some context for where we're reading. So this story, the Tower of Babel, is located, it's located in the Hebrew Bible in the first book, a book called Genesis. And it's named that because it's the book about beginnings. And something important about Genesis that's good to know is that it's structured around this concept called Toledo, 
which in, for, in English, that's Hebrew, means in English, generations. So as you're reading Genesis, the first thing you're gonna come up with is these are the generations in which the heavens and the earth and the day in which the heavens and the earth were created. And then these are the generations, Adam and Seth and so on and so on and so on. So this concept of Toledo, generations, binds the whole book together. But even though the book is bound together like that, scholars actually differentiate between the first 11 chapters and chapter 12 onwards. Well, why do they differentiate? Because they think there's actually multiple genres happening within the book. They say that chapter 12 onwards, starting with the story of Abraham, is clearly a historical narrative. Few people dispute that. Um, But the first 11 chapters are quite disputed. So what uh, genre are the first 11 chapters then, we should ask, of, of Genesis? And this is important because it sets up how we read the text. What genre are the first 11 chapters of Genesis? Well, scholars give different options, and the one that I put forward that a number do is, is, is it called, they call it proto-history. And you're like, well, what's proto-history? Well, the Old Testament scholar, uh, Gordon Wenham, helps us out here. It's proto in that it describes origins, what happens first. It sets out a model for how God deals with mankind, so proto. But it's historical in that it describes real events in the past and lessons that we can draw for them. And so it's proto-history. But then how is proto-history different than historical? Well, if history could be described as a photograph of the past, proto-history is more like a dramatic painting of the past. If history is described as a photograph of the past, proto-history is like a dramatic painting of the past. A painting can faithfully represent the past, shaped, though, by the author's intentions. And it's these intentions that the modern reader is to focus on. He's not obliged to decide if this detail or that detail is historical or interpretive. Rather, they focus on the question, what is the author intending to communicate from this event? So it's proto-history, and I think there's two uh, main things that the author of Genesis wants to communicate to us from this event. Two main things the author of Genesis wants to show us from the story of Babel. So first, I wanna say it's man's frustrated enterprise, and second, God's gracious intervention. Man's frustrated enterprise and God's gracious intervention. So we'll start with man's frustrated enterprise. Genesis 11 and verse one. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And all the people migrated from the east, and they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So the, the text here, it says that the whole earth had one language and the same words. This is a very interesting claim, isn't it? So it's just, if this is a claim that you struggle with, I just wanna invite you to just come speak to me afterwards. However, for the sake of time, we're gonna keep going. It says the people here, they settle in the land of Shinar. And this is referring to an area known as ancient uh, Mesopotamia. It was the land of the Sumerians. And we go on. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Mortar. (laughs) My pronunciation. I cannot pronounce things. Anyway. So they had this brick and this stuff that goes between the bricks. Well, why bricks? Well, the land that they were in, it was far from stones. And so they innovated and then they developed this new technology. What was the new technology? It was the brick, right? We don't don't think about it now, but the, the technology of the brick was an amazing invention because it enabled the building of cities where there was no rock, right? Out in faraway places. And this is what happens then. And they said, 
This is exactly what they do. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. Now, is there anything wrong with this? Is there anything wrong with building a tower? Is there anything wrong with building a city? Well, well no, in and of these, themselves, there's, there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with these things. There's nothing wrong with seeking to build the tall tower, growing a successful business, or being the best chef in the city of Montreal. Right? There's nothing wrong with wanting to grow your portfolio, trying to get good grades. Nothing wrong with, in other words, excellence. But there are two problems in this tower-building enterprise, which is why I've labeled it man's frustrated enterprise. And the problems are this, their motive and their outcome. So let's look at the motive. The question is this, why? Why are you pursuing excellence? What is your purpose? What is your purpose? Well, the text tells us what theirs was. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. The purpose was to make a name for themselves. Well, the obvious answer here, what's so bad, you might ask about that, is that it's, it's prideful. Behind every, <laughs> behind every tower lies an even bigger ego, is, is what one of my professors used to tell us. And what do I mean by pride? Well, by pride, I mean an excessively high opinion about oneself or their abilities and their importance, right? And in pride, people, we assign ourselves an ability that according to the Bible belongs exclusively to God. This is what we do. We assign ourselves abilities that belong exclusively to God and we inflate our importance and our opinion of our abilities. And so, because this is something that belongs exclusively to God, only, only God can tell a person like Abraham that he will make a great name for him. And only God can make a great name for himself. But you might be wondering at this point, right, if it's wrong for us to make a great name for ourselves, well then why is it okay for, for God? Aren't we supposed to be imitators of God? And I've, I've heard this question actually asked more like this. Isn't the Christian God being arrogant, sort of like a spoiled child telling us that we can't lift up our name, but his name is to be lifted up and to be praised? Well, here's the problem. This question assumes that, that God is like us. But the reality is that God exists in a way that's completely different from us. The reality is if God exists in the way that he revealed himself in the Bible, the difference between us and him is profound. And this is, here's one of the core differences, that God is holy and his character is the definition of good itself. This means that when God's name is made great, that goodness, peace, and joy, beauty, all of these things, they too will be made great. Remember the angels at the birth of Jesus? They say, glory to God in the highest, peace and goodwill to men. The idea is that when glory to God is given in the highest, peace will tend to break out among us. But on the other hand, we who are not wholly good like God, when we try and make our name great, disorder and pride, these sorts of things that characterize us will break out among us. So listen, for God to want us to glorify his name, this is the best, this is the most wonderful, the most gracious thing that we could ever want or that he could want for himself. Because it's only when the name of God is glorified that the whole universe will be fully set aright. And so now we see why the purpose we were created for was not to make our name great, but to make his name great. So what then motivates you towards excellence? 
Remember, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be excellent at, at your job or at your work or at school. But the question is, what is your motive? Are you trying to make a name for yourself or for God? And if you're like me, you hear this question, you're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard for me to like diagnose you know, the motives, the structures of my heart. Am I trying to make a name for myself? I don't know. But look at what happens next in the text. The text actually helps us here by giving us a way to detect our motivation. We'll read on. This is the same verse. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top of the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So what drives them to make a name for themselves? What's motivating them? They don't want to be scattered, right? The world, it was, it was big and unexplored, and they didn't want to be alone in it. They, in other words, they didn't want to be insignificant. And it's not just that they didn't want to be insignificant. They didn't want to be insecure. The world wasn't just big and unexplored. It wasn't very hospitable. Who knew like what was over there beyond the horizon? We don't know what they thought, but maybe if they you know, walked too far, they thought they'd just fall off. <laughs> so this fear, this fear of insignificance and this fear of insecurity, it drives them to make a name for themselves so that they could leave a legacy, so that they wouldn't die out. And so now, with this in mind, we can assess our own motivations a bit better, right? Are we like the builders of the tower? Are we being driven by fear? Do you seize the opportunities that God has placed in front of you, or do you play it safe in fear? Do you play it safe in fear? Do you feel like you've been taken captive by what Dwight talked about two or three weeks ago, taken captive by the what-if monster, right? What if I fail? Right? What if people think I'm weird? What if God calls me to do something that lowers my salary, right? Some of you are making major life decisions, likely right now, right? And are you in the decision-making process filled with joy and peace or feel your heart captured by fear? And you see, this text has shown us that the one characteristic of making a name for ourselves is fear. Fear of insecurity, fear of insignificance. Here's the twist. But when God calls you to serve him, you have nothing to fear. Just pages before, right? God has blessed the people. He says to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the land. It's a blessing. So this wasn't a command that could be broken. No, it was a blessing that needed to be trusted. However, what happened? Fear captures their hearts, and the desire to make a name for themselves took over. If you can relate to this, you're not alone. Um, for me, the most recent example, of course, is just preparing the sermon. Well, you know, preparing it, I find myself, I'm worried, right? I'm like, stress, will it be a good sermon? <laughs> will they like it, right? Why was I concerned? I was, I was concerned about my reputation. I was afraid of my reputation. In other words, I wanted to make a name for myself. So don't think that people like you know, me who are involved in church work or just doing church work makes you immune to these sorts of things. You see, when I focus on making my name great, I'm being driven by pride. And when I do that, when I'm being driven by pride, there's everything to fear. But when I'm focused on making not God's name great, in Him, there's nothing to fear. And so 
pride and fear are these motivators that drive them to build this tower to make a name for themselves. That's, that's the first problem with, with the tower, the motive. And the second problem is their outcome. But we need to look at the text a little bit more closely uh, to see this. So given the time and the place that this event occurs, and the technology, the brick, right? This tower is, is known uh, to be called a ziggurat. That was the name they called them. And it's this sort of like this, because you can see from the picture, like a pyramid-like structure with a staircase running up um, one side of it. And it, it was a temple, it was a sacred space. And these, these ziggurats had names like stairway to heaven or the link between heaven and earth. And these names, they, what they did is they actually described their purpose. And so what we see from this is that these towers weren't made for humans to go up but rather for the gods to come down. This wasn't a stairway to heaven, it was a stairway from heaven. And so what might be going on here? Well, remember what happens before in the story. Their ancestors, Adam and Eve, had lost the divine presence of God in Eden, right? The God who walked and talked with them in the cool of the day. The God whose presence brought, brought order and life and wisdom and since that time, they had been seeking to restore God's presence through the offerings of Cain and Abel or those who called on the name of the Lord. And finally, here you have them, you have them just, just building this tower. They see the benefit of having God with them again. But here's the catch. The name of God in this is never mentioned. They want to make a name for themselves. In other words, they want to use God as a means to their own selfish end. They want to use God as a means to their own selfish end. There's a story this might remind you of in the Gospels. And it's, it's a story of Jesus flipping over temple uh, tables in the temple courts. And people wonder why, like, in this story, Jesus flipping over, why was Jesus so angry? Well, the temple court, the, the area that Jesus was flipping those tables in, was where the non-Jews were supposed to be able to come to access God's divine presence. And Jesus was angry because this sacred space was now being filled with people taking advantage of God's presence and using it as a means to their own financial gain, right? And we do this too, don't we? We want, to, we want God to be present as a means to the end of making a name for ourselves. We want God to be present as a means to the end of making a name for ourselves. And this is the essence of counterfeit Christianity. Sometimes it looks something like this. If you do good, if you do your church activities, if you say your prayers, then God will bless you. You know, if you build your tower of good deeds high enough, then God will come down to you. Or as Chance the Rapper says in a sort of twisted Sunday school song, when the praises go up, the blessings come down. Now, is this how we view God? The praises go up, the blessings come down. Do we view God like some sort of cosmic vending machine? You know, you input your religious efforts, your programs, and your spiritual disciplines, and then out comes God's blessing, right? Well, the inevitable outcome of this sort of thinking is that when you try and use God as a means to your end, it's always bound for failure. You see the story? isn't just written to show us the sinfulness of pride, but also the foolishness of pride. It's demonstrating that our best attempts to make a name for ourselves are destined for failure right from the beginning. Right from the beginning. Remember it says um, that this tower they had built to the heavens, and yet, it says, the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower. Now this isn't meant to like question uh, 
what God knew or his, his power, right? It's not that they couldn't see the tower, but it's, it's rather, it's to demonstrate the futility of our best attempts before God, right? Think about it. Nothing we can do will enable us to achieve God's presence. It's destined for failure. Let's jump ahead though. What happens here at the end? Verse nine, therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So to the, to the ancient Babylonians who built this tower, Babel means in their language, it means gate of God. And this is what they wanted. They were harnessing technology to obtain God's presence for their own selfish needs. But how were they remembered? Babel, Hebrew for confusion, right? The whole story summarized by this one word. The tower became a monument to the confusion that ensues when we attempt to make a name for ourselves. And this confusion, it starts in our own hearts. We fear being insecure, right? We, we fear being insignificant. We selfishly want to use God as a means to our own end. But thankfully, thankfully God doesn't leave us there. And this is where we get to God's gracious intervention. I want you to see something here, and that it's this, this whole story, the way that it's structured, it actually centers around verse five. In the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower, which the children have men, of men had built. Look at this structure here. You have the first half of it coming down, and it reaches this sort of pinnacle where the Lord God comes down. And this is the turning point in all of history. And you see man's actions on the other side paralleled against each other. Right? So the first four verses about man's enterprise and the last four verses about God's intervention. God steps in right in the middle of the story. And what we find in verse five is that in order for something to be done about our pride and selfishness, in other words, the, ba the babble in your heart and mine, God must come down. And he must come down in judgment and in mercy. And so God comes down in judgment. Verse seven, come let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. So the judgment of God was to allow confusion and dispersion. And if you're like me, you're probably like, well, why, why would God ever do that? But notice that God's judgment, it fits the wrongdoing, well, how so? They had attempted to make a name for themselves, but by confusing their language, now they could no longer unite under one name, right? And so we see judgment here, but this isn't only an act of judgment. At the same time, it's also an act of mercy. Let's look at verse six. And the Lord said, behold, they're all one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Nothing. What would be possible for them? It, it leaves it open. This is, this is an extraordinary comment on the capacity of man and the way that like, technology amplifies that capacity. And, and looking at our world today, it's easy to get the impression right, that we, we would be able to do anything we want. But what God is saying here is that same technology in the hands of sinful man can be used for good or for ill. 
right? Think about nuclear technology. It's the most obvious example, right? It can be used to bring, bring power to thousands of people, to whole communities. But that same nuclear technology can be used to destroy thousands of people and whole communities, right? And so verse six is saying that because man is sinful, if God hadn't intervened, what sort of mess would we have found ourselves in, right? Their sin, their sin if left unchecked would have caused even greater confusion at the Tower of Confusion. Their sin left unchecked would have caused even greater confusion. God had to save them, in other words, from themselves. And so the impact of man's divided sin would be less than man's united sin. The impact of man's divided sin would be less than their united sin. So God in mercy comes down and confuses the language and disperses them so that apart we might have a better chance to turn and seek God and find him. But God had a plan all along to deal with the Babel in your heart and in mine. At the Tower of Babel, God was representatively dealing with the nations of the world. And what did they choose? They choose to make a name for themselves. And then this sets up what happens next. God scatters the people, and the very next chapter we meet Abraham. And here God takes one man and one nation, and he says, as opposed to you making a name for yourself, I will make a great name of you. I will make your name great. And so Abraham and his descendants, time goes by and they wonder, how can this be? How can this happen? And God gives one of Abraham's uh, descendants, Jacob, he gives him a prophetic dream in which there's a staircase that stretches from earth to heaven. And he dreamed, here it is, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? There is none other than, this is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven, the gate of heaven. This is what they had wanted at Babel, a ziggurat tower reaching to heaven so God could come down. But they weren't able to bring God down on their own efforts for their own selfish gains. Yet here God shows Jacob that there will be a gate to heaven. And on his own initiative, God does come down. 2,000 years ago, God came down in the historical person of Jesus Christ. And what he prophetically showed Jacob, a staircase from heaven became a reality in the person of Jesus, that Jesus linked heaven and earth, and he became the stairway. In fact, this is what he says of himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see, they descend on. Jesus is the stairway. He is the link between heaven and earth. He is the way that we can ascend to and have access to the Father. And so how does God ultimately deal with our pride and selfishness, the Babel and your heart and mine? It is Jesus. He is the one who humbled himself. He is the one who took on the form of a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a Roman cross. Jesus never tried to defend his own reputation. He wasn't motivated by fear and selfishness. No, he was motivated by perfect love for his father. And speaking of death, Jesus says this. He says, for this purpose, for the purpose of death, how could that be? For the purpose of death I have come. Father, glorify thy name. 
See, his purpose wasn't to make a name for himself. It was always to glorify the Father. And he goes to the cross. And it's on that cross we see the effect of sin. There he is displaced. There he is disconstructed for your sin and for mine. And on that cross, all confusion breaks loose. Think about it. The Lord of glory, ingloriously crucified. The giver of life, killed. The sinless one bearing the sins of the whole world. What confusion. And he does this all to do what? To bear your sin, the babel of your heart and mine. And he died for the sin of us trying to make a name for ourselves. And he died for the sin of us trying to use religion selfishly for our own gains, as a means to our own end. And he died so that through his death, we might have life. And he lives again. He didn't stay dead. He was raised to life. And now he can extend to us, because of this, forgiveness for your sins and for mine. And we can then be free from trying to make a name for ourselves because of him. We can be free of pride because we can find our confidence in him and what he's done. That he has become the stairway down from heaven with which we can have access to God. And now what has happened? The Father, it says, has highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we trust him in faith to be Lord of our lives, right? The astounding thing is that when God looks at you and when he looks at me, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus's humility. He sees his perfection. He sees how Jesus never tried to make a name for himself in you. And so he gives you the name of his son. The credit that is to his son is extended to you. He gives you the name of his son so that we can be free then. You see the link. So we can be free from making a name for ourselves. The very problem at the tower of confusion. And so this becomes the culmination. This is God's gracious intervention in the face of our frustrated enterprise. We do this frustrating enterprise. We try and build towers in religious, techno, selfish, pride-oriented structures, and God comes down. And it doesn't end here. What happens next? In Acts 2, after Jesus ascends to heaven, there's this event called Pentecost, where the Spirit comes down and fills the followers of Jesus. And get this, some of the same words used for the story of the Tower of Babel in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you actually find in Acts 2. Well, why? Because at Pentecost, God has come down and poured out his spirit, reversing the curse of Babel. At Babel, united humanity was trying to get God come down by their own selfish initiative. At Pentecost, God comes down on his own initiative, right? At Babel, all the languages are confused and the people are dispersed. At Pentecost, it says all the nations under heaven were gathered in one place. And there, miraculously, by the Spirit of God, everybody was able to hear the gospel in their own language. So that what can happen? So that gospel can then be extended, scattered, dispersed to the nations of the world. You see, the Tower of Babel, it forms the bookends of God's dealings through and in the Jewish people. And then outside of that, up until that point and post-Pentecost, this event, we see God dealing with the nations 
of the world directly, you and I. And so since Pentecost, we no longer need to attempt to build a stairway to heaven or temples because through Jesus, it says our bodies have become temples of the living spirit of God. Isn't this wondrous? Do you see the culmination of what is happening in this story? That everything is drawn to this point where because of Pentecost, the spirit of God now lives in you and you are a temple that can bring him right praise, right? And so I wanna end with this. This is a bit of a shorter sermon. Is your life confused? Can you uh, throw it forward? Is your life confused? Are you living in humility, freedom, joy, stability in Jesus? Are you living in, in fear and, and selfish distress? Sometimes this is how God exposes our misdirected purposes, our, our fearful, selfish pride. And I'm not, I'm not very old, right? But I'm old enough to have seen a few of my dreams get smashed, right? I've had my hopes and I've had my high expectations and I've seen them all come tumbling down. And at those points in my life, at those points that we can all relate to, I'm left asking myself, why? Why did God allow this to happen? Why this confusion, right? You see, sometimes God in his mercy must bring confusion to confound us because only then can we see the reality of Jesus. Sometimes God in his mercy brings confusion to confound us because only then can we see the reality of our hearts and Jesus. And only then does it expose our fear. Only then does it expose our selfish pride. And so at that point, we can then turn to Jesus and trust him. And so perhaps you're wondering why this event happened or that event happened. Perhaps it's God's merciful, merciful intervention on your behalf. So turn to him. I wanna urge you to turn to him, put your faith in him, and you will find rest for the confusion that is in your soul. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you have come down, that you have reversed the distortion, the deconstruction, the curse at Babel, and that you have put yourself on a cross and crucified when we give to you our pride and our selfishness. And through you and by you, you can renew our hearts. You can change the very structures of who we are and fill us with your spirit so that we can then go out as temples of the living God and reach this world. And so I pray that you would be present with us this morning as we worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.